welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the... Please wait a moment. One of the very interesting things about uh, this mad honey is it is probably the first documented evidence of using chemical weapons of war. When Pompey the Great invaded Asia Minor, he faced up to someone who thought of themselves as the nemesis of Rome, uh, a guy called Mithridates VI of Pontus. Pontus was a small kingdom on the southern coast of the Black Sea. And he was quite interested in plant chemicals and toxins. He was aware of the effects of mad honey, and anticipating the invading armies of Pompey the Great, he laid out honeycombs along the path of the invading armies. So when they were marching into Asia Minor, they came across these honeycombs and I guess presumed they were the food of the gods, you know, some kind of gift of the gods. So they consumed them and then fell into a drunken stupor as a consequence of the toxins. And then Mithridates and his army, who were hiding nearby, were able to come in and slaughter them in their beds. My name's uh, Phil Stevenson. I'm a professor of plant chemistry at the University of Greenwich, and I also have a dual position at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew, where I run a chemical ecology team. I'm interested in plant chemicals because plant chemicals mediate the interactions between plants and their environment, and I'm particularly interested in the interactions between plants and insects, and even more specifically at the moment, particularly with bees and other pollinating insects. Rhododendrons are highly diverse and you can find rhododendrons from Greenland to Queensland in fact right across Asia in North America Uh, probably the greatest diversity is in the Chinese Himalaya uh, and across to North India there are somewhere in the region of a thousand different species and they are all quite different in size for instance the smallest from a few inches to the largest which may be a hundred feet So the chemical that is produced by this plant is a diterpenoid, or a group of diterpenoids called gryonotoxins. The reason it's produced by the plant, at least what we originally believe, is as a defence chemical, because it's toxic to invertebrates, particularly invertebrate herbivores that might be a threat or an antagonist to rhododendrons. And we've done some work recently that's shown it is biologically active against a thrips species that's important in our glass houses at Kew, for example. So we know it's definitely a defence chemical when it occurs in the leaves, because it occurs throughout most of the plant. But its occurrence in the nectar is a slightly different question, and of course this has the, the human interest element of the story, because people consume this chemical when they're consuming the honey. But we think there may be uh, an ecologically relevant reason why this compound occurs in the, in the nectar. I grew up in Southeast Asia and I'm Pakistani. My parents are from Pakistan. So I had heard about Himalayan honey being like some of the best honey in the world. But I was not aware of the story of mad honey in terms of the psychedelic effects of of this honey that's found in the Himalayas. My name's Abdullah Saeed. Uh, I'm a media maker and producer for television. There is a tribe village out there that's been there for thousands of years. The name of the village was Thalo Chipla. And a couple times a year, they go and harvest this honey from these very, very high cliffs that's made by the world's largest honeybee. And in fact, that that honey has a psychedelic effect. (laughs) 
got in a car from Kathmandu and drove about five hours to a town and I'm in the mountains. And then from that town did four hours in a four by four on like crazy rocks, just like jostling back and forth the entire time. We got to a little rest house. Then we slept at the rest house. From there, we hike up this mountain to a village. From that village, we hike further up the mountain to our campsite. And from that campsite, we hike yet further all the way to the top of the highest cliff in this area, essentially. So you're, you're in a very, very remote place at this point. So these cliffs are like three to 400 foot off the ground, right? You get there and now you're at essentially the hot zone, right? This is the top of the cliff. Right underneath us, there's thousands and thousands of bees swarming on a whole set of massive, massive honeycomb. Now, each one of these is like three, four feet across, right? And I mean, there's there's tons of them. They're huge. If you've ever seen a beehive, I mean, a four foot wide beehive is is a thing to behold. From the bottom of that 400 foot cliff, you can see those beehives very legibly. They're up there, right? The Himalayan bees are extremely clever. They're massive. They're the world's largest bees. They're about like, you know, 1.2 to 1.4 inches. They'll basically build their nests in the place where it's the hardest for anyone to reach, right? And for thousands and thousands of years, didn't have too hard of a time because you get to a fairly high place and most creatures aren't going to be able to get to you, right? But human beings are pretty smart and, uh, you know, they devise ways to get up there. All the villagers are gathered and they're all wearing these sort of makeshift bee masks and suits. They're all in long sleeves, right? They're wearing woven baskets on their head with gauze over them, different colored gauze, right? So they have these sort of like pointy heads and they look like a bunch of aliens, you know, just like uh, working away at something, you know, a bunch of like otherworldly creatures. And then their hands are like Mickey Mouse gloves, right? They're like, they're fat and swollen from all the bee stings. And they're going ahead and doing everything with their hands, you know, very tactfully. This group, they shave off pieces of bamboo, that, which are then woven around each other, which are turned into ropes. This group takes pieces of wood and carves arrowheads into each end. And then, you know, they collectively jam the arrowheads into each part of the rope, thereby building this ladder. You know, the guy who's going to climb that ladder hasn't been building the ladder. He's been like standing over there getting psyched up for this insane thing that he's about to do you know what i mean climb over the edge and he's honored and revered this is a collective effort this is a sport this is a sporting event this is a multi-day celebration and you don't realize when you walk up you're like oh hey gary steve you know whatever everyone's hanging out and you just look over and there's a sheer drop i mean it's like up there is where the party is at. The guy goes down, he brings up the honey, and as it comes up, that's when you want it. I remember feeling like the come on of a mushroom trip. 
It's this slight tentativeness, right? It's like a little bit of nausea, maybe, or just dizziness, you know, like a little bit of vertigo. And, you know, the anticipation that something more is coming, right? Uh, and it's sort of a giddy feeling. It's a little bit giggly. So I immediately got giddy. I, like, turned around and looked at the producer, Chloe, and, you know, Billy, the camera dude, and I was like, I uh, get let out a little chuckle, and I was like, I'm high from this honey, right? Now, here's the thing about this rhododendron honey. If you're not getting it within a day or two or within a week or two of it coming off the mountain, you're going to be experiencing way, way less potency. I know for sure that I ate mad honey right out of the comb on the top of the cliff, and I got lit. We think that in these honeybees that actually feed off the nectar, they have enzymes that might be able to break down these compounds or detoxify them so that they're actually able to use that nectar safely. And humans don't have those enzymes. This particular topic is interesting because rhododendron is such a, a massively important invasive species in the British Isles. So the original question that we were trying to address was, what is this plant doing to insects or pollinators in the landscape. One of the things that we've shown in a collaboration with Trinity College in Dublin is that the chemical in the nectar is selectively toxic to flower visitors. Uh, so it might be a mechanism by which the plant filters out the non-specialist. Bee, for example, is visiting one flower. It's there to get food, not to pollinate. The pollination is the service it provides essentially uh, accidentally as a consequence of visiting the flower. And what the flower wants is for that pollinator to then go and visit a flower of the same species to make sure its pollen is transferred. Now that insect could visit any other species, any other number of different species, um, but the flowers develop methods or mechanisms by which they can try and focus the pollinators. So we can see some of these mechanisms uh, in other examples, particularly around physical shape. So you'll have flowers that have got long corollas, so the, that's the flower tube is very long. So the nectar right down the bottom of the tube is only accessible by long-tongued uh, species of insects, for example. And interestingly, in those species, we don't find any of these toxins, these granotoxins. And we think that might be a clue as to why these toxins are produced because we find them in the species within the rhododendron genus that have an open flower, so essentially a nectar that's available to all comers. And we think that why it's producing this toxin is to filter out the non-adapted flower visitors. So rather than having a, a shape that limits access to the nectar, it's producing a chemical that's a poison to most of the flower visitors but just a few of the adapted ones are able to access that, that nectar and then deliver that uh, more effective pollination service. So by having a specialist mechanism, you essentially uh, conserve the nectar for that one species of insect or a few species of insects. So they focus on that one flower and increase the chance of pollen being transferred to another flower of the same species.
But when we get this plant growing outside its natural habitat, so for example, the Rhododendron ponticum, which is the species that has invaded the British Isles, uh, this is a species actually from around Turkey, from around the Black Sea, and also in the Iberian Peninsula. This also produces granotoxin, uh, and in its native area, particularly around the Black Sea, again, it's famous for producing this mad honey. But the same species growing in the UK, we don't get mad honey because our bees are non-adapted. And in fact, we've done some work that shows that the chemical is highly toxic to these bees. So Apis mellifera from the British Isles is very sensitive to this chemical and dies within a few hours of being fed it. Actually, if you give it a choice, it will prefer not to feed on this diterpenoid. But very interestingly, bumblebees in the British Isles are fine with this compound. So if you see, uh, in fact, in the, in the next uh, month or so, we'll see rhododendrons flowering in a lot of places, uh, you'll see them covered in bumblebees because bumblebees can tolerate this toxin. And so that kind of suggests it has this ability to filter out some of the insects and just conserve that nectar for a, a few species and get that greater fidelity and increase the chance of pollen being transferred to a flower of the same species. But understanding what the chemistry of nectar is, is hugely important for various reasons that we're currently researching actually at Kew at the moment. And these include, for example, the fact that uh, chemicals in nectar have antimicrobial properties. And so when bees consume them, they potentially have benefits against diseases that the bees are carrying. So we could imagine a world where we're planting field margins around crops that not only provide nectar and pollen for bees, but also potentially provide them chemicals that they can help manage uh, their disease load. Uh-huh. <laughs>